you're going to close the door of the bathroom. You know, Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to this special session of the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs in partnership with Lethbridge Public Library. I'm Trevor Page, and I'll be your moderator this evening. To pray or not to pray? Well, that gets to our very being and our dying. Tonight, our speaker, Dr. James Linville, will discuss some of the implications of the Supreme Court of Canada's recent ruling that a religiously neutral state may not, and I quote, favor or hinder any particular belief or non-belief under the guise of cultural or historical reality or heritage. The ruling was prompted by prayers being said before municipal council meetings in Sangane, Quebec, before the mayor and councillors got down to doing the business of the city. Close at home, up the road in Tabor, the issue of whether or not morning prayers should be said in publicly funded schools recently made the national headlines. But the question to pray or not to pray raises issues that are much broader and deeper than that. And I hope that we'll be able to get into some of those tonight. Our speaker, Dr. Lindell, has been a professor of religious studies at the University of Lethbridge since 2002, teaching courses in Old Testament, Judaism, and mythology. He holds a PhD in Hebrew, and Old Testament from the University of Edinburgh. Jim will speak for about 50 minutes, and we'll then have a short break, followed by a question and answer period. We plan on wrapping up the session around 9 o'clock. Now, the audio of this is being recorded, and it'll be up on the SAGPA website uh, this week. That is www.sagpa.ca. Please switch off your cell phones. And now please welcome our speaker, Dr. James Lindell. Well, thanks, uh, Trevor, for that nice introduction, and to uh, Knut Peterson uh, for the invite, everybody to do with SACPA, 
and uh, of course the Lethbridge Public Library. And thanks to you for uh, showing up um, on a rainy sort of Tuesday. Um, the question of the role of religion in our society underlies all of this. I hope to make some small contribution to that discussion tonight. Um, I, I mentioned this hope to my wife earlier, and she said that I haven't got a prayer. Um, but hey, I knew that. Um, now, as Trevor pointed out, the event that inspired this presentation was the Supreme Court ruling on April 15th that the Sangane uh, City Council has to abandon its tradition of reciting a prayer prior to its meeting. Lethbridge, Calgary, and many other cities have ceased comparable practices, while other jurisdictions are defiantly carrying on. A related issue uh, is the place of mandated prayer in public schools, and as was already mentioned, that this is quite uh, timely since the Horizon School Division has announced that Dr. Hammond's School of Tabor will reintroduce the Lord's Prayer in September. Needless to say, there are varying opinions as to the wisdom of this. Um, and some people are predicting, although to my knowledge not uh, threatening, further court challenges. Uh, so what I would like to do tonight is first to describe and then defend the Supreme Court ruling. Uh, but I should warn you, I'm not a legal expert or political analyst. I'm a scholar of religion. And I tend to see all of this through the lens of religious studies. But I do want to show that the Supreme Court's thinking about religion in the public sphere is far more nuanced and sensitive than some of its critics allege. It does not adopt a simple anti-religion position at all. Even so, some considerable challenges lie before the courts and us in trying to sort out a viable and fair place for religion in the public sphere. I would also like to address the Tabor School pro, uh, prayer issue and argue that plans to reinstate the prayer are unwise, especially in view of the Supreme Court ruling and its reasoning. But I also want to challenge in some ways uh, or to present some challenges to us in thinking about religion and society and secularity. Perhaps the greatest lesson uh, from the Saguenay decision is that we need a higher level of public discourse on religion, secularity, and so forth than we typically enjoy. Organizations like SACPA, of course, are doing a great job with perhaps some momentary lapses on the occasional Tuesday evening, but there you go. Uh, in particular, the relationship between private and social religion is not an easy issue. It's often cast that way, but it isn't. The courts themselves and lawmakers have struggled with this. Um, and public opinion is sometimes badly oversimplified and overpolarized. And uh, finally, I'd like to um, suggest some possible ways forward. Um, that we might address some of the concerns that are coming out of all of this. So, off to Quebec. 
In 2006, Alain Simoneau and another man complained about the Catholic prayer ritual preceding the city's council meeting and the crucifix present in the chambers. After receiving no satisfactory response from the mayor, Jean Tremblay, they took the issue to the province's human rights agency. In 2008, the Human Rights and Youth Rights Commission ruled that the prayer did violate uh, conscience and religious rights, but decided not to take the issue to the Quebec Human Rights Tribunal. Simoneau, however, took the matter further on his own accord, and in the meantime, the city changed uh, the recited prayer from one that was steeped in the Catholic tradition to one based on the prayer that opens that Canadian houses, uh, House of Parliament. And it's non-denominational, although still theistic. So the new prayer, Almighty um, God, we thank you for the many favors you've, you've granted, and its citizens guide us, that sort of thing. And it's very similar to the prayer that opens um, the House of Parliament. In 2011, however, the uh, Human Rights Tribunal ruled that um, the, the, this revised prayer violated uh, the complainant's rights. It required the city to end the prayer, remove the crucifix and other symbols, and to pay $30,000 in damages. The decision was overturned by the Provincial Court of Appeal in 2012, and so off it went to the Supreme Court. In mid-April of this year, the court decided to uphold the original judgment of the Human Rights Tribunal. Eight of the justices concurred, with Justice Clement Gascon writing up the decision. Rosalie Abella concurred in part. Uh, but it's important to understand some of their reasoning here. Simoneau's objection was that his freedom of religious and conscience was, uh, were violated. This was answered by the assertion from the city that the city's officials were exercising their own freedom of conscience and religion in the prayer. The Supreme Court, however, rejected this argument rather um, forthrightly and said, and I'm quoting, sponsorship of one religious tradition by the state uh, is in breach of its duty of neutrality and amounts to discrimination against all other such traditions. End quote. Now this duty of neutrality um, was presented in terms of both the Quebec Charter and the very similar Section 2A of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Basically, we've got the freedom of conscience and religion. Uh, according to legal scholar uh, Richard Moon of the University of Windsor, Canadian courts do not regard freedom of conscience as identical to freedom of religion, but rather view it as a complement that ensures the protection of non-religious beliefs. He says that this twofold recognition precludes the need in Canada for a definitive court uh, definition of religion, and this has proven very, very problematic in the United States when trying to argue what religion is. Here, uh, um, according to Moon, we can be a little bit more flexible, but as we'll see later on, there's still um, 
some issues that arise here in Canada. Now, one of the important cases that the ruling refers to is that of the Big M drug mart. Uh, it's a case in which a Calgary drugstore was charged in 1982 with violating the 1906 Lord's Day Act for conducting business on a Sunday. The Supreme Court ruled in 85 that there was no purpose behind this law other than to impose a religious requirement. And so the law was unconstitutional and invalid. In the decision, Justice Brian Dixon wrote, quote, what might appear good and true to a majoritarian religious group or to the state acting on their behalf may not, for religious reasons, be imposed upon citizens who take a contrary view. End quote. Uh, so the Saguenay ruling also quoted Dickinson, or Dixon as saying, uh, the charter safeguards religious minorities from the threat of the tyranny of the majority. This tyranny is something that Canadian courts seem to regularly find problematic. Two cases stand out, and both were cited uh, in the recent case in Quebec. In 1989, the Ontario Court of Appeal ended school prayer in Sudbury, even though non-believers were allowed to excuse themselves. That court ruled that even with this allowance, charter rights were violated. The court said, quote, the exemption provision poses a penalty on pupils from religious minorities who use it by stigmatizing them as nonconformists and setting them apart from their fellow students who are members of the dominant religion. The other case... Friday versus some place near Georgian Bay, I'm not even going to try that uh, in public, uh, involved city council meetings that were opened with the Lord's Prayer. That 1999 ruling uh, was completely in line with the previous one. The Salganane City Council had justified their prayer bylaw by noting that it was to, quote, ensure decorum and highlight the importance of the work of the councillors, end quote. But the Supreme Court didn't buy this either, noting that the prayer's purpose was primarily religious in nature. Decorum, the court decided, quote, could have been ensured in many other ways that would not have led the city to adopt a religious belief, end quote. The city council made another, a number of other arguments, and you can hear these echoed in the recent flop around Tabor and other such issues. Uh, so you're not hearing anything new in the news about the Tabor issue. First of all, uh, it was argued that to rule against the prayer would be to create a bias in favor of atheism or agnosticism. In ruling against the municipal prayer, the Court of Appeal, or in favor of the municipal prayer, the Court of Appeal held that the duty to neither encourage nor discourage belief uh, does not require the state to abstain from all matters of religion. 
Rather, heritage and tradition must influence how that duty is performed. In rejecting this, the Supreme Court differentiates between absolute neutrality that it admits is impossible to obtain from a true neutrality that requires the state to obtain from, ta uh, from taking a position on religion. Now, they're quick to point out in this ruling that this is not to favor non-religion at all because abstention means that the state is equally prevented from denying the existence of a deity. Also, um, City Council argued that the revised prayer it was non-denominational and it was uh, argued that this doesn't violate anybody's rights since it is inclusive of all. The appeal court accepted this. The Supreme Court did not. And it pointed out that the prayer remains religious and therefore excludes non-believers and that this exclusion was not trivial. They also mentioned uh, the prayer that opens the House of Commons and that the, the new prayer in the city was modeled after. And it argued that um, if the government can do it, well, so can the city. But the court um, dismissed this as well, saying uh, for a uh, simple reason that uh, no evidence was presented uh, to the court about you know, this particular uh, prayer's purpose, so it couldn't really make a difference or a decision. It argued that the context of the parliamentary prayer is probably quite different from the municipal uh, prayer, and there's something along uh, called the parliamentary privilege, in which some facets of the operation of parliament uh, are isolated and protected from the judiciary uh, system. And then there's the preamble to the uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Canada is founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God, and the rule of law. So it's argued that prayers to the same deity cannot by themselves violate the freedoms of conscience and religion. Supreme Court decided, however, that this argument ignores the context of the prayer and that the preamble, again quoting, cannot lead to an interpretation of freedom of conscience and religion that authorizes the state to consciously profess a theistic faith, end quote. Janet F. Buckingham notes that the inclusion of God in the preamble was the result of Christian lobbying. And it was, uh, but it was also a means of avoiding a situation like the American separation of church and state that forbids funding of any religious groups. And so it also provides a means for Canada to promote a religious-friendly pluralism in the country. So rather than affirming the right to prayer, it's affirming that religious perspectives have a rightful place in society. But what I found most interesting about the decision was this whole concept of state neutrality and how it has evolved. The courts, just like every other facet of our uh, 
nation have long struggled with changing social environments. Supreme Court ruling observes that the Canadian Charter does not impose a duty of neutrality on the state at all. But rather, this duty comes from an evolving interpretation of freedom. So there's a long history behind this position. At the time of Confederation, laws sought to perfect, protect the different Christian denominations to which the vast majority of non-First Nations Canadians subscribed. Richard Moon writes that earlier in, uh, uh, early in Canadian history, many thought that some kind of common religious ground would be a proper guide for public action. In English Canada, uh, this was what he calls a watered-down public Protestantism. In Quebec, the Catholic Church had pronounced social roles. For example, the Catholic Church ran the provincial education program until the uh, quiet revolution secularized the province in the 60s. But more than mere traces of our watered-down public Christianity persist in Canadian society. Christian privilege surrounds us, and we defer to it frequently, even without thinking about it. Often this takes the form of a cultural heritage. For example, the Christmas holidays, uh, you can't get the government on the phone on a Sunday. Uh, now, I should add that despite my religious views, or lack thereof, I have absolutely no problem with politicians saying Merry Christmas or anything like that. Uh, now, we'll probably lose some more of this Christian heritage over time. And in some cases, I think this will be a pity. But we also have to notice some other things about this, this uh, Christian heritage of ours. Notice how people sometimes use the word Christian to label the finest of human values. Hey, it's the Christian thing to do. By way of contrast, what would be implied if you said, that's pretty Jewish of you? Well, that's pretty Muslim of you. Would such statements be taken as a respectful reference to the centuries-long traditions of complex ethical thought and altruism in these two faiths? Probably not. The rise of secularism and an increased awareness of plurality led to a dissociation of church and state in Canada. For example, the overturning of the Lord's Day Act. But in the process, religion came to be regarded as a matter of voluntary association and personal preference rather than a social factor. Now, Canadian courts realize how intricately linked religion is to people's core identities, and therefore they acknowledge that religion has a public social side. Justice Gascon, in uh, our case, observes that because religion is so central to personal identity, that when the state adopts particular religious beliefs, it is creating what he calls a hierarchy of beliefs, casting doubt on the value of those it does not share. It is also ranking the individuals who hold such beliefs. So the court is not trivializing religious belief in making its decision, but it takes it very, very seriously. 
According to a number of legal scholars, Canadian law wrestles with balancing religion as both a private and social phenomenon. Courts have required state neutrality in regards to the private aspects of religious belief, uh, but not so much against the public. For example, courts rule against religious practices by the state, so no prayers in city council, but allows individual expression of religious values and political decision making. So it's regarding the proper place of religion as a matter of personal conscience, not social uh, structure and so forth. And it's important to note that religion and culture are hopelessly intertwined. As a professor of religious studies, my job is not really to identify the boundaries of what is and is not religion, but rather to show that any established boundary is flexible, fuzzy, arbitrary, and sometimes downright impractical for any useful purpose. And the academic literature uh, is absolutely huge in this regard, with some scholars going so far as to say religion only exists in the eye of the scholar studying it. Um, there are some folks who poo-poo that idea, right? Kind of, sort of. But they've got a point. Uh, when you look at the way we think religion is, it's modeled on a Christian idea. Uh, what we call religion in Japan functions somewhat differently to the point that what we call Shinto in Japan isn't regarded as religious at all. Right? So very, very different sorts of views. And how religion interacts with society, uh, also very, very complex. Most historical societies never had actually a word that compares to our word religion. They just had the way that they did things. Right? Uh, now, in the case of the Hatterian Brethren of Wilson Colony and their uh, attempt to uh, get exempted from Alberta requirements to have photographs on the driver's license, uh, Justice LaBelle, who was uh, dissenting, noted, quote, perhaps courts will never be able to explain in a complete and satisfactory manner the meaning of religion for the purposes of the Charter of Rights, end quote. He shouldn't feel that. Religious studies uh, has long wrestled with trying to justify its own existence without ever being able to clearly define just what it is that we want to be paid to study. Right? Maybe I shouldn't have said that. Uh, oh well. Uh, carrying on. In any case, there is a major problem in reducing religion to a set of personal beliefs. But this is where the public debate ends up. It's your beliefs, don't stick them in my face, sort of thing. Uh, now one can list many doctrines that religious folks are expected to believe, and perhaps many of the folks actually do believe those things. Certainly Christianity and Islam stress beliefs. Judaism, however, does not. There is no Jewish creedal statement that one must sign or adhere to. Hinduism, in its many forms, is based on belonging to certain levels of society and following their prescribed actions, private and social, 
and in some forms on meditative states of mind that are hard to subsume under the Western concept of faith at all. Reducing Hinduism or Shinto to a set of beliefs is hardly the way to really grasp what so many Indians and Japanese people are doing and thinking. And hence it becomes very hard in Canada to understand what many uh, folks from religious communities are doing. And it's, well, we can refer to immigrants, but we can also refer to the vegetarian brethren, all sorts of other groups like that. The way I see it, rather than being about believing, religion is more typically about belonging to a community and performing actions that associate one with the divine and with other people. Sure, there's belief involved, but, but I think it's wrong to reduce it to belief. It's trying to put round pegs into a square hole. But even with Christianity and Islam, one shouldn't overemphasize pure belief. Indeed, uh, the linking of acts of faith, such as public prayer, to community factors like heritage and tradition is evidence of that. If it was purely about belief, why is there a desire to publicly express it? Uh, as feminist theory has reminded us, the personal is political. Religion is social. I'm sure many of you here have, have had first-hand knowledge of how it's impossible to deny the public implications of your own religious beliefs. Some of the commentators on the Herald website uh, about the Tabor issue have asserted as much. But they would be wrong to assume that the Supreme Court is unaware of their struggle. Justice Beverly McLaughlin in a case over the acknowledgement of gays in school books in uh, Surrey in 2012, writes this. School board members are entitled, indeed required, to bring the views of the parents and communities they represent to the deliberation process. These views will often be motivated by religious concerns. Religion is an integral part, aspect of people's lives and cannot be left at the boardroom floor. Now, I would agree with Justice McLaughlin here um, over the Calgary Herald commentator Naomi Lacritz, who recently uh, wrote that our pluralistic society leaves no space for faith in the public square. And she was writing in response to uh, the Calgary's, uh, Calgary's decision to abandon municipal prayers. Uh, and uh, Mayor uh, Nenshi thought it was a shame that faith was being left out. Uh, our pluralistic society, however, does have a place for faith. It's just that the state can't pick one faith to legitimize. But it leaves personal commitments and social identities untouched and very much in play. Uh, and many commentators have noted that uh, excluding religion entirely from public life compromises the very notion of state neutrality. Some uh, 
commentators view the state as an intermediary between different faith communities. And so it's required to be neutral. Now, whether the state is doing a good job as an intermediary or not is open to discussion. And it should be discussed, and hopefully will be in our own local context. Um, So I found the uh, Supreme Court ruling absolutely fascinating. Um, I would encourage everyone to read the whole thing. Um, It's about 100 pages long. There's no pictures. Uh, But it's not as intractable as I originally feared. It has very little legalese and no fine print. Um, And you can get it for free. Just Google it, and uh, it will show up. Uh, Now, it seems to offer little wiggle room for continuing state prayers, even though it's recognized and we've got all of these issues going on. So on to Tabor. An Alberta law that was first drafted before Alberta was even a province complicates this whole situation. The 1905 Alberta Act allows a school board to direct the school to open the day with the Lord's Prayer. I would have to leave it to those with expertise in legal matters as to whether the school uh, Act can withstand a challenge based on on, uh, the Supreme Court ruling. But to my mind, there seems to be a direct contradiction between the two. Uh, But how is this old law manifesting itself in our neck of the prairies? The Horizon School Division's policy on the Lord's Prayer says in part, quote, teachers are expected to ensure that non-participants are treated discreetly and with respect at all times. And the law requires the school to allow students to either sit out the prayer or to leave the room. Uh, But I would ask, how can one discreetly excuse a first grade child from a class or a group activity? Is this not running the risk of stigmatization that the courts have a long history of pointing to? The policy also says Students exempt from partaking in recitation of the Lord's Prayer are still expected to adhere to behavior expectations during the regular school day. Someone noticed something. (laughs) I would admit to not paying much attention to my grammar lessons. But the wording seems to me to imply that kids who don't pray require more behavioral direction than those that do. Now, perhaps the school board merely wanted to imply that non-conforming students should mind their P's and Q's while everybody else is praying. But that's not what they wrote. And why mention behavior issues at all? Is there some subtext here suggesting that the unchurched are particularly unruly? But some of the affected parents I've been talking to on Facebook and by the telephone um, have also noted that sending a kid out to the hall or having them sit out in activity is a traditional form of punishment. What message is being sent here? Again, we have this whole stigmatization. Moreover, the policy itself is spectacularly contradictory. But that is the fault of the law, not the school division. The policy 
policy begins by affirming the board's decision to religious tolerance, diversity, inclusiveness, and, quote, provision of appropriate opportunities for students to give expression to their religious beliefs, end quote. It then refers to the Alberta Act and other uh, legal instruments. But I'd like to highlight a number of questions about this. What opportunities would be given to non-Christians for religious expression in this school? Are there any at all? Have they even thought about it? And if there will be such opportunities, does everybody in the school have to stop what they are doing so some can consciously refuse to take part? What kind of public legitimization would the school give Muslim students during prayer time? Would everybody have to recognize this time? Secondly, who's being asked to be more tolerant here? The majority or the minority, or is it equal? The majority have to put up with a few non-conformists remaining quiet or leaving the room and then, being, and then they just have to be careful not to bully them or whatever. The dissenters, however, have to tolerate a systemic inequality and the stigmatization that goes along with it. Stigmatization may not be as visible as physical bullying, but it can hurt just as much. Just a few uh, weeks ago, I think it was, I forget where it was, but there was a news report of a special needs child. I think he was autistic or Down syndrome in a school. He invited his whole class to his birthday party. Nobody showed up at all. Right? He wasn't being bullied. But look what this did to him. Right? So... Is this policy truly inclusive of the student body's diversity? As we have seen, the Supreme Court has determined that even exemptions are discriminatory and harmful. Should a majority get their way when a minority's rights are at risk? In an article in the Lethbridge Herald, May uh, 21st, Superintendent Wilco uh, Tennyson said that the board must acknowledge diversity, but also be responsive to the community that has voted overwhelmingly in favor of reinstituting the prayer. Of 175 affected families, 145 responded with only 12 voting against the proposal. But should fundamental rights be granted to minorities only on the approval of the majority? It's important to note that parents do not have a legal right in Alberta to expect their child's school to lead in the recital of a prayer. Alberta law allows a school board to direct a school to perform the prayer. It does not require the school to do so because a majority of parents want it. What is at stake are the rights of those who do not want to join in. These should not be violated by a majority vote. Timmonson acknowledges the legal requirement uh, to ensure that non-participating students enjoy a safe and caring environment in school. And I have no reason to suspect his sincerity. But these kind of prayers are proven to be coercive and stigmatizing 
This tyranny of the majority is very real and very common. I'll um, skip ahead a little bit. The Alberta law that permits the situation is a throwback to a very different age. When we look at many other realities of life a century and more ago, we can see tremendous change. In 1905, women couldn't vote. First Nations children could be removed from their parents and sent to residential schools to be civilized and Christianized. The government outlawed many First Nations spiritual practices. There was open and legal discrimination against others, including Jews and the Chinese. We've changed in many, many ways. Change is natural and inevitable and sometimes a bit painful. Canadian identity is a project, not an artifact from the past. I think we might take a lesson from conservative Judaism here. The past has a vote, but not a veto. But why open a school day or a town council meeting with a prayer or a ritual at all? What's to be gained from it? First of all, human beings are deeply ritually oriented, even those of us who say we're not. Uh, if something really important is happening, you can just about bet that someone is going to wax eloquent, wave a flag, marshal a parade, harangue the masses, or otherwise mark the occasion by trying to get everyone around them to either laugh, think, or cry together. Now, there's all sorts of different theories as to how and why people are religious. But according to Catherine Bell, whatever else communal rituals do, they're exercises in social power. Whatever the overt reason given for a ritual, the action elevates the issue to one of communal and cosmic significance. And people align themselves according to this ideal pattern. And so ritual not only is an expression of a community or a society, but rather it's a powerful tool in creating a society. Those who can find no place in that depicted relationship, by extension, have a less firm foundation in society itself, as the uh, Supreme Court observes. Um, now, we ask why such symbolic expressions like municipal prayers are so important to many in the first place. They can pray for wisdom in their own time. But what matters to many is that it is communal. But then, if it shouldn't matter that a few excuse themselves from the community, why should we not expect everyone to forgo the ritual? Uh, so, to my mind, one of the implications of this ruling uh, is that we have to radically rethink public ritual, not necessarily eliminate it, but rethink it, to make sure that everyone in the community created by the ritual can have a place in it. Now, um, there's a major wing of, of modern, well, we'll call it thought, um, that attempts to curtail religious privilege that is decidedly anti-religious. And it's easy to find uh, all kinds of examples of people insulting uh, religion and so forth. So we have Richard Dawkins and so forth. 
Uh, and it's easy to see how many religious people would associate that negativity with everything that seems to uh, produce an obstacle. But I think there's an awful lot of moderate voices who aren't heard as loud as people like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and so forth, who would really do want to live in a mutually supporting town and not one fraught by um, all kinds of, of uh, enmity and so forth. But do the requests to end school and municipal prayers in themselves amount to religious persecution? I don't think so. Uh, the majority of calls are from moderates. Um, so secularism itself has many different meanings. Just like the term religion, there's little hold of consensus. One thing is clear. Most scholars and social commentators use secularism to refer to something far different than atheism. And for very many, including myself, secularism does not imply anti-religious stance at all but rather something more like the court's religious neutrality. And people can pick and choose to be secular in any given moment. Deeply devout people can be secular about any number of social interactions or exchanges with the government, um, except maybe the tax people. Uh, but why should town hall meetings or the school day be marked as non-secular? Why do they need to be secularized to function uh, Properly, And so I produced a number of, of options here. None of these are really original. So what do we do in schools and town councils? We have no ritual at all, just simply call the thing to order, get the kids to sit down, sh shut up, and go to sleep like they usually do, you know. Um, Suggestions of singing the national anthem, uh, that's a bit thorny because that mentions God too, right? Uh, and I don't know the likelihood of the Canadian government changing the official wording anytime soon about that. A moment of silence. And um, the moment of silence, of course, um, People are often be lost in their own thoughts. They can do whatever they want. And no one has to know. So the stigmatization goes. Um, I was also thinking, you know, about if you, people really do need a ritual, how about writing for each separate body affirmations of the values, rights, and obligations of the council members? There are obligations to treat everyone fairly and equally. There are obligations to uphold religious rights, and so on and so forth. Because that's what they're there to do, right? Now, um, I don't know what such a thing would look like. I'm not particularly eloquent, but someone's bound to be able to come up with something that doesn't sound stupid, right? I have a certain level of faith. Um, and something like that might even work for schools. And in schools, there's recently been uh, the big flap about the gay-straight alliances, that now schools have to allow these, these student clubs. Well, what about um, school boards making sure that students 
have the right to produce their own prayer clubs for whatever religion they are. Maybe finding them a, a classroom at recess or lunchtime or whatever. Right? But present it to them as an option. What about an interfaith and secular alliance club? Oh, there's a number of um, possibilities here that um, that we can still accommodate the need for people's public expression of religion, but we can do it in a way that's open to everybody. Now, a one-size-fits-all solution is not going to work. And a solution that I think is uh, sort of written in stone isn't going to work either. As I said, identity is a project, not an artifact. But what's the way forward? Clearly, reducing the situation to a pro versus anti-religious dichotomy is counterproductive, and it badly misrepresents our own history. There's no winner in a struggle like that. And I really, really have problems with anybody, including other secularists and atheists, who make demands for an ideological purity. That causes all kinds of strife. Uh, but what's needed is an open dialogue on the nature of neutrality and plurality. What does it look like in an ideal form? Can it be achieved in any kind of practical way? And most and importantly, who would win or lose from each alternative? There's no ideal solution. Uh, according to some commentators like uh, Janet F. Um, I don't have her name. Uh, Buckingham, uh, Alberta has the most accommodating and inclusive education system in Canada. And I think that's something we should be proud of. Uh, And this is regardless of the uh, Lord's Prayer provision. Do we want to lose this choice or expand it? If the latter, can we pay for it? We already have two school boards, Catholic and Protestant. What do we do? But in closing, I'll leave you with this. Do we want to create a host of little enclaves, jealously protecting their kids from the outside world as if it holds no place for them? Or do we want a cosmopolitan plurality marked by interaction, exchange, and mutual support in an admittedly imperfect, but hopefully manageable and neutral public space? Canadian identity has been marked by the two solitudes of English and French isolation from one another and the lack of will to see things through another's eyes. I do think we have to be careful that we are not producing many more solitudes on sectarian lines. Uh, So, uh, strictly maintaining policies, I don't think is the way forward. We do have to be flexible and we do have um, but I think we do have a good resource in the thinking of the courts. It's not just rules from on high. I think what we have in there are really interesting and wonderful resources for public uh, 
discussion and not just things for lawyers to mull about. So I'll, I'll leave it with that and uh, thank you for, uh, well, staying awake, I guess. Not throwing things. <laughs> Thanks a lot.